Please remain standing for the reading of Scripture. This morning we'll look at John chapter 7, verses, I'll start at verse 31 and we'll read through 52. And while you're turning there, let me just remind you of the message we heard last week from Dr. Woodbridge um, about great revivals that God has brought about in history. I've been thinking about that all week and praying that God would bring about a revival. And I hope many of you have been praying for that as well. And I want to ask you to continue to pray for that, um, that God would work mightily. Because if God doesn't work mightily, this is all for naught. If God doesn't work, if God doesn't send His Spirit, uh, my preaching is in vain. Um, so we are dependent upon God. So let's pray together. And it's challenging to pray for God to do a work of revival. Um, because I'll be honest, as I pray for God to bring about a revival, in the back of my mind is going, do you really believe that? Do you really think that God would do that? And I'll just admit that I'm challenged. Um, and I say, Lord, I have faltering faith, but nonetheless, I'm going to pray that you work mightily. Um, but let's pray for God to work mightily. Let's pray that Fox Lake is different because of the ministry here. Let's pray that there's a visible manifestation of the gospel. Maybe it'll be in liquor stores shutting down. Uh, maybe it would be in people singing praises to God. Wouldn't that be something if we went to Dominic's to buy groceries and we heard people singing, This is my father's It's my father's world too. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Let's pray. I know this challenges us. It challenges me, but let's Let's pray. God can do this. He's done it in the past. He can do it again. God is not through bringing about revivals. There's no way that that is possible when you read what God is going to do in the Scriptures. John 7, beginning at verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in Him. They said, When the Christ appears, will He do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Him. And the chief priest and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will find me not. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he had said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. 
The officer then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the laws accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it rebukes us, challenges us, convicts us. We thank you for how it also builds us up and encourages us. Father, I pray that your word will go forth this morning like a great light, giving light to our past so we know how to live. Father, may your word also sanctify us so that we will reflect the character of Christ just a little more in our lives. Father, we pray for you to pour out your spirit. We pray that we will not... Leave here unchanged this morning. Father, we pray that you will bring about a revival in your church. Father, we all need reviving. Father, we need to grow in our love for you. We need to grow in our boldness in proclaiming the gospel. We need to grow in our love for our brothers and sisters. Father, we need to weep more over the lost who are perishing and going to hell. Father, work in our lives. Work in our community. And we pray that you would do this so that your name would be glorified. So that Jesus Christ would be exalted. So send forth your spirit. Even this morning we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. I wonder how many of you children have learned about the continental divide in your classes. Look at Zachy, four-year-old. <laughs> Have any of you students learned about the continental divide? If you like, afterward, you can come up and I'll show you a picture of the continental divide off of Wikipedia or you can uh, look it up at home. But the continental divide has to do with the mountains that run from Alaska down through Canada and then through the United States and then finally on down through Mexico, South America. And in northern Canada and America, the continental divide uh, is the Rocky Mountains, and rain or snow falls and it lands on the Rocky Mountains, the great continental divide, and the water either runs east or west. The water eventually runs into the Pacific Ocean or the Gulf of Mexico or Atlantic Ocean, And the waters never come together again. They're separated forever. That's the great continental divide. However, the greatest divider is Jesus Christ Himself. And there are many ways in which we can look at how Christ divides. First of all, consider how Christ has divided history. In a sense, Christ has descended and He has split history in half. 
One half, the first half we have B.C. and in the second half we have A.D. B.C. stands for before Christ, before the first advent of Jesus Christ. And then we have A.D., which doesn't stand for after death. Please don't say after death. It's Latin for Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. And this year is the year 2011 A.D., the year of our Lord. Jesus Christ has split history in two. And of course, we don't like that, so we're trying to do away with that. Now we want to talk about the common era and before the common era, because we don't want to make reference to Jesus Christ, but it's hard to do away with Jesus Christ and the division that he brings. There's another way in which Christ divides, and this more specifically has to do with how he divides people. Even how he divides families. In Matthew 10, 34 and following, this is what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Isn't that something? A person's enemies will be those in their own family. In many cultures, it is not an exaggeration to say that Jesus has brought a sword to our family. Jesus has brought division. In America, I don't think we really understand the division that Jesus can bring. But in many countries, like countries in the Middle East, they understand the division that Jesus brings. In 2009, this story was in the news, and this is from CNN. And it has to do with a Muslim girl named Rifka, see if I can find her last name here, I misplaced it, Rifka Berry. When Rifka Berry was 17 years old, her parents found out that she had converted from, excuse me, from Islam, from being a Muslim to being a Christian. And there was a death threat placed on her life from her own family. This is what CNN says. The teenager, in a sworn affidavit, claims her father, Muhammad Barry, 47, was pressured by the mosque the family attends in Ohio. This is not in the Middle East. This is in Ohio. The mosque stated to deal with the situation, quote unquote. In the court filing, Rifka Barry stated her father said, if you have this Jesus in your heart, you are dead to me. The teenager claims her father added, I will kill you. In a court filing Monday, John Sternberger, Rifka Berry's attorney and president of the Christian Advocacy Organization, Florida Family Policy Council, accused the parents of Ohio Mosque of having ties to terrorism and radical Islam. The Nor Islamic Culture Center has denied the allegations. Steinberger told CNN he agreed with his client that she would be killed by radical Muslims if she is returned to Ohio. 
She is a person who is ripe for apostate killing or mercy killing. I am not going to let my clients slip away in the night by going back, said Steinberger. In many cultures, when one turns to Jesus Christ, and usually the dividing line, the cultural divide, also has to do with water. The waters of baptism. And when they go under the water, and they come out of the water with new life in Jesus Christ, they are disowned by their family. Lewis Goldberg, one of my professors at Moody, mentioned how when he turned to Jesus Christ as Messiah, he was ostracized by his family. In many cultures, when Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but to wield a sword, they understand the division that takes place. Now, while many of us may have not experienced a death threat because of our conversion to Jesus Christ, I know that many of us in this church can understand the division that takes place. Since becoming a Christian, we no longer have the same relationship with our father or our mother like we did previously. Many of us don't enjoy a close relationship with our brothers or sisters like we used to. It's amazing that when you party together, when you drink together, you can have a great relationship. But then give that up. Give up partying and drinking and becoming a Christian. And notice how the relationship severs. And a divide enters into the relationship. And of course, I think all of you who work in the marketplace understand the division that Jesus brings. Just stand around the water cooler at work and then bring up the sermon that was talked about on Sunday and mention the name Jesus and just watch and see if a division doesn't take place at work. Or in the neighborhood, try talking to your neighbors about your love for Jesus Christ and your devotion to Jesus Christ and just watch how the divide starts to take place as they start to drift back from you. I think you can understand this. Jesus Christ really is uh, the great divider. And the greatest divide in our country is not between Democrats and Republicans. It's not even between liberals and conservatives. It's between Christians and non-Christians. Followers of Jesus Christ and those who reject Jesus Christ. And I also want you to notice that this divide of Christ uh, between history, this Christ that divides people, is a divide that goes on into eternity. Christ divides eternally. People will be eternally united to Christ in heaven or eternally separated from Christ in hell. This divide that Christ brings is eternal. Looking at the Gospel of John and the first century context, we see that the division of Christ involved much more than vitriolic rhetoric. Uh, That is nothing Uh, compared to what we see in the first century. Not only was Jesus called demon-possessed, a bastard, He was also called, and this was one of the great insults, He was also called a half-breed Samaritan. But the division over Christ didn't stop with mere words. It also went on because His life was threatened on numerous occasions. On numerous occasions, mobs came after Jesus. And then we read many times, and he walked away. (laughs) And we're left wondering, well, well, how did he do that? 
Obviously, God was watching over him. Uh, and this hostility towards Christ was no secret. This is what we read in John 7, uh, 25 and 26. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? It was common talk. People knew it. This is the man they want to kill, Jesus. And here he is speaking open, openly, and they have nothing to say to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? The people knew. The authorities wanted to kill Jesus. They're wondering whether or not it could be the Christ. Conversations take place. And then verse 30, So they were seeking to arrest Him, but no one laid a hand on Him. Why? Because His hour had not yet come. This is very important. We've seen... Uh, up to this point, that Jesus' time had not yet come, but this is the first reference to hour. His hour had not yet come. Do you know what his hour refers to? The crucifixion. His hour to be crucified had not yet come. Why had it not yet come? Because the Father had the timetable all laid out, and he had the time of his crucifixion all laid out, And that time had not yet come. So even though they want to arrest him, even though they want to execute him now, they can't do it because the time, the hour, has not yet come. We see the same thing in 8.20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus' whole life was sovereignly laid out, sovereignly ordained by the Father. The hour had not yet come, so no one could lay a hand on Him. And this is very important. The same is true for us. In Psalm 139, we're told that the days of our lives are already laid out. The days ordained for us have already been written. God has a plan for our lives. So just like Jesus, we will continue to live until our hour comes. So we should live in light of that. I love saying to Michelle, and I've said this before, and I said it again when I was going down the Mississippi and she started to get a little worried. I said, honey, I am immortal. (laughs) I don't remember if I flexed any muscle or not. (laughs) I am immortal until God's work for me is done. And so are you. And so was Jesus. Our time is already laid out and nothing and no one can change that time. Verse 31, we read, Yet many of the people believed in Him. They said, When the Christ appears, will He do more signs than this man has done? You see the logic they're employing here? It's really very clear and very compelling. When the Messiah comes, if another Messiah were to come on the scenes... Would he do more signs? Would he do more miracles than, than this man does? Jesus has turned water into wine. He healed a nobleman's son. He healed a paralytic at a pool. He fed 5,000 men in addition to women and children. They're watching all these signs and they're concluding, would, would another man... Would the Messiah actually do more signs than this man has done? And they say, we doubt it. And you know that Jesus is just getting warmed up. (laughs) 
The signs and the miracles will continue. So they conclude this man must be the Messiah. And you remember John's purpose in writing this book. In John 20, 30 31, he says Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. And that purpose is being fulfilled right here. They're seeing the signs. They believe he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And they're experiencing life. And of course, the challenge to John's readers in the first century was, will you believe as well? Will you look at the signs? Now, that's their logic. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. Isn't that interesting? What do they think? This is wonderful. (laughs) Many are believing in him. No, uh, they were not excited. Uh, How did they respond to the logic of the crowds? Did they open up the Old Testament Scriptures? They did not open up the Old Testament Scriptures. Why? Because there was no answer found in the Old Testament Scriptures to refute what they were saying. So what did they do? The chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest Jesus. They employ the strong arm of the law. They get officers who will go to Jesus, arrest Jesus, so that Jesus can be tried and executed. It's the only way that they can think of to stop Jesus, to stop the crowds from turning to Jesus in faith. We'll come back to the officers a little later. Verse 33. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Tell me in one word, what is Jesus referring to here? Heaven. This is the ascension. Right? 33, I will be with you a little. And then I am going to Him who sent me. Who sent Him? The Father. He is going to ascend to the Father in heaven. Now, I believe this is very significant for understanding how Jesus lived His life on earth. He knows that His hour is coming, but He knows that that is not the end. He knows that, yes, He's going to be crucified, but He also knows, and three days after that, He's going to rise from the dead, and then 40 days hence, He will ascend to heaven. He will return to the Father. Jesus lives His whole earthly life in light of heaven and eternity. Now, that is very significant. He lived in light of the ascension. We should live in light of the ascension. The ascension, I believe, is one of the missing Reformed and evangelical doctrines for many reasons. And it's not just one of those doctrinal statements that we check off. You know, deity of Christ, check. Inspiration, authority of Scripture, check. Trinity, check. Toning death of Christ, check. Ascension of Christ, check. It's more than a doctrine that we just check off on a list. It's supposed to be something that we live our lives according to. It's something that's supposed to give us the perspective that we need on earth. Turn ahead to John 13, if you will. 
John 13.36. Jesus is talking about leaving and we read in 13.36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. And then 14.1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to Myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to Him, Lord, we do not know where are You going. (laughs) How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus ascended to the Father so that He could prepare a place for us, so that He could come back, so that we could also ascend and be with Him with the Father. That's our destiny. That's what we're to live in light of. That is so important. We, we are blessed in America to enjoy great health. And one of the interesting things about reading history is that you realize what we enjoy, other people didn't enjoy. Uh, read about Jonathan Edwards who lived in the early 18th century. And you'll find out that it was common in early America for women to give birth and to die in childbirth. It was very common for women to give birth to children and to have those children die. And even Jonathan Edwards' own family, although all their children lived, which was incredible, many of them died later at a relatively young age. And they just lived in a culture of death that we can hardly relate to. You know, we hear about a shooting in Arizona and a nine-year-old dies and we're just like, oh, this is tragic. And it is tragic. But what it also is, is foreign to us and very rare. There are other cultures in which it wasn't rare. And because of that, they lived in light of eternity because they were reminded continually and dramatically in their own families, life on earth is not going to happen forever. They would live in light of eternity. I think we have great difficulty living in light of eternity because we're so blessed. I really do. But we need to live in light of eternity and we need to focus on it more. We have to be more deliberate because we're not going to be confronted with it staring us in the face. From time to time, something will happen, and some of you can relate to this, but we need to think about it. And if we could live in light of eternity, we would be set free from the worldliness that we all struggle with. Okay? We all struggle with worldliness. We are all, to greater or lesser degrees, Secular. Secular. Uh, Now, what does that word mean? Secular. It's kind of an interesting word. I looked it up in the dictionary. Uh, It can mean uh, worldly versus being religious, right? We don't want to be secular. We don't want to be worldly. We want to be sacred people. We want to be devoted to the religious. Uh, But in Latin... Uh, seculum, from which we get this word secular, means of an age or generation 
temporal. That's, that's very interesting. Technically, a secular person is a person who only lives during this generation of this age, a person who only lives in light of the temporal, a person who doesn't live in light of the eternal. That's a secular person, person who just eats and drinks and be merry for tomorrow we die and we don't want to think about the hereafter. That's a secular person. And the antidote to worldliness, secular living, is not asceticism. It's not denying ourselves the enjoyment of legitimate pleasures that God has given us in this world. Nor is the answer rules. As my brothers in Mississippi would like to say, it's not just about not drinking, not dancing, not chewing, or going with girls who do. Okay? That will not set us free from worldliness. Turn to Colossians, if you will. Paul lays this out very clear. Colossians 2, beginning of verse 20. Colossians 2.20 If with Christ you died the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you were still alive in the world you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Don't drink, don't dance, don't chew, or go with girls who do, will not stop your children from doing those things. So what is the antidote? If then, three one. You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. See the antidote? Look to heaven. Set your mind on things above, on Christ who is your life. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. How do you, how do you put to death sins that are mentioned here? How do you put to death worldliness? It's by having an eternal perspective. Looking to heaven, looking to Christ, living in light of that. And again, this is something that we all struggle with. This is something relative for every single one of us in this room. None of us perfectly does what Martin Luther advised us to do, and that is to live every day in light of that day, the judgment to come. None of us does that perfectly. And and. Ambrose's, Ambrose Bierce's Devil's Dictionary, he has this definition of a Christian. One who believes that the New Testament is a divinely inspired book admirably suited to the spiritual needs of his neighbor. 
Unfortunately, I think he came up with that definition by looking at Christians in his culture. We often think, oh, that's great. I hope so-and-so is listening. I hope my spouse is listening and the elbows start to fly. We all need an eternal perspective to set us free from the hold that this world has on us. We need to live in light of a day in which we will stand before Jesus Christ and give an account of how we have lived. Imagine if if we would live in light of that day, how different things could be. We're going to stand before Christ someday and we're going to say, Lord, these are the finances that I've given to you through the local church. This is what I have given to advance your kingdom. I was talking to a couple last week, and they've been a part of this church for like 10 years, and they said, through tithing, we have given almost a year's salary to this church. I was thinking about that. Michelle and I have been here 13 years. We've given close to $100,000 to this church. I'm not bragging. There's nothing to brag. I'm just doing what God is calling us to do. But I just want you to know, you who are faithful in giving, a day is going to come and you're going to say, Jesus, this is what I gave to you because I love you. And the rewards are going to come back. Money has a hold on all of us. Okay? All of us. Starting right here. But if we could live in light of eternity, Lord, this is what I gave to you. How different it would be. We are just pilgrims passing through. If we could just get perspective. The houses that we enjoy, we're just going to enjoy them for a few decades at best. Who cares how nicely they're furnished? It's no different than me going down the Mississippi in my hotel room. Did I clean it up when spoiled milk got all over the floor? I guess I'll tell you everything that happened. Spoiled milk all over the floor. Did I worry about cleaning it up? No, I threw some towels down, kind of wiped it up a little bit. I'm sorry, that's what I did. I admit it. Not my house. I'm just here for a week and I'm coming home. My wife was there to ask her to clean it up. You know, honey. <laughs> We're passing through. Th- think of the perspective that we could have. We're passing through. This is our opportunity to honor Jesus Christ with our love. With, with our lives, to advance His kingdom, His glory. This is our opportunity. And then the day is coming when we're going to say, okay, this is what I did with my life for you, your kingdom, and your glory. If we could live in light of that day, I ask you, if we could live in light of that day, would you live differently today? That doesn't mean that you can't relax doesn't mean that you can't go home and watch the Bears game this afternoon. I shouldn't have brought that up. That's too distracting. It doesn't mean you can't do those things. I mean, you need to relax. There needs to be times of un- unwinding so that we can be strengthened and then say, okay, now I'm going to go to work and I'm going to honor God. Jesus had this perspective. It, it's interesting. It, it's almost like a passing thought, but it's so profound. You know it affected Jesus' whole life. He came here to do the will of the Father. He knew He was returning to the Father. And He lived in light of that reunion that would take place. We need to live in light of that. It's very, 
Very important. In verse 37 and following, we talked about this in a previous message. Jesus talked about, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Reference to the Holy Spirit that he was to give. And that also relates to the ascension. Jesus ascended so that he could send the Spirit so that we could be empowered to live the Christian life. And so that we could be life-giving to others. Out of us, we become fountains of living water that spreads to others. So that we can give life to those around us. And then in verse 40 we read, When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. And this is a reference to the prophet that Moses said in Deuteronomy 18 would come from his people. Others said, this is the Christ. This is the promised Messiah. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They had only done their homework. They would have seen as precisely where Jesus was from, the hometown of David, from the line of David in Bethlehem. But they didn't do their homework, so they didn't know that. And then notice in verse 43, So there was a division among the people over him. All these differing opinions. We saw that earlier. We see it here. We'll see it again. Nothing's changed today. Just bring up Jesus and you will see the divisions taking place. 44. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no laid hands on him. Why not? Because his hour had not yet come. John doesn't say that again, but I think it's very clearly implied. But notice, some wanted to arrest him. You do not remain indifferent concerning Jesus. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Now, now think about this for a moment. This, this is utterly fascinating. Remember, the Pharisees, chief priests, got the officers together. They issued the arrest warrant. They had the jurisdiction to go do so. Go get Jesus, arrest him, and bring him back. Do your job. They did not bring him back. Why didn't they bring him back? Now, don't look at the answer in Scripture. What would you expect them to say? Why why didn't you bring him back? Why didn't you arrest him like you were told to arrest him? Well, because we didn't find him guilty of anything. They don't say that. Uh, Because we were afraid of the reaction of the crowd if we tried to lay hands on They don't say that. What do they say? 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. That is awesome. No one ever spoke like this man. They went to arrest Jesus and they were arrested by the teaching of Jesus. They were mesmerized. They were spellbound by what Jesus was saying. And they listened to Jesus. And as they listened to Him, there's no way that they could arrest Him. 
We don't know if they put their faith in him, but they're listening to Jesus and they're coming to at least one conclusion. This is no ordinary man. There is no way that we can arrest this man. No one ever spoke like this man. We have never heard this kind of teaching ever. And they are at least willing to listen to Christ. They are at least open to the possibility that maybe He is the Messiah. There's no way that they're going to arrest Him. What's the response of the Pharisees? Pharisees answered Him, Have you also been deceived? (laughs) Not you too. You can see their frustration. The deception, by the way, as they call it, is growing and growing and growing. Have you also been deceived? And then, and it just, you gotta detect, I, I believe, this, the snotty elitism in this tone here. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. This crowd doesn't know the law. Keep that in mind. The law. They don't know the law. They're accursed. They don't know anything. Mockery. That's what they're doing, isn't it? They don't have a logical answer. They're trying to arrest Jesus. That doesn't work. What do they resort to now? Name-calling You idiot, have you been deceived too? You're part of the crowd. They know nothing of the law. Look at all the elites, authorities, Pharisees. Are they followers of Jesus Christ? No, they're not followers of Jesus Christ. But all these hicks, yeah, they they follow Jesus. You're going to go with them? This is just mockery. By the way, don't overlook the power of mockery. There's such big debate because of this Arizona shooting about the quote-unquote vitriolic rhetoric. We need to tone down the rhetoric. I just laugh. (laughs) Not going to happen. It is not going to happen. Why? Because mockery is powerful. And this may surprise you. Jesus used mockery. Jesus used satire. I'll just give you one example from Matthew 23 in case you think mockery or satire is unchristlike. Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Verse 15, What do you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you travel across sea and land and make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! That's not a compliment. Woe to you, fools! That's, that's not nice. So would you really call people fools? Jesus did. What are you blind fools? And he goes on. You can read it for yourself. White watch sepulchers. Brood of vipers. Wow. Strong language. Why does he use it? 
because it gets a point across. Now, I admit, sometimes there's, there's a fine line between appropriate mockery, satire, and sin. I'll admit that. But you need to know it. mockery is powerful. And because it's powerful, people will continue to employ it. And you should employ it when you're teaching your kids. Think of Proverbs. Look at the sluggard. Rolls over on his bed like a door on its hinges. What a fool. You, you should... Point that out to your kids. And you know what you should do? You should mock lazy people. You should mock them. Look, look at people. Are, this is what happens when you're lazy. Son, dog, this is what happens when you're lazy. Don't be like that fool. Don't be like that sluggard. Don't be like a sloth. What's a sloth? Well, let me show you a picture of a sloth. Isn't that a funny animal? Writer of Proverbs says that person's a sloth. Don't, don't be like that. It's powerful. That's why they employ it. It's a last resort, but they, they employ it. And then it's interesting. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and listening to what he does? Remember Nicodemus? In John 3, he comes to Jesus at night. And he says, Teacher, we know that you are sent from God. And then he listens to Jesus. Is Nicodemus converted yet at this point? I'm not sure. Is he considering Christ at this point? I believe he is. And I believe it's very bold in what he does here. He's standing up for Jesus, of course, but he's doing it in a very subtle way. He's not overtly saying, I believe he's the Messiah. We need to listen to the claims. He's being more subtle. He says, our law. Notice that. Our law that we religious leaders love, the Torah that we have memorized, our law listens to a man before judging him. Nicodemus is just giving a simple appeal to the law, saying we need to give him fair justice. We need to do what our law says. You know what the Pharisees are saying? We could care less about our law. Interesting. These people know nothing about the law. And then here we have them not following the law at all. They only follow the law when it's convenient for them. They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Are you also a hick from the backwoods of wherever. That's what they're saying. This is more mockery. Are you from Galilee too? We know about these Galileans. You didn't like Galileans. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. No prophet arises from Galilee. That's kind of interesting. Jonah came from Galilee. (laughs) Prophets do come from Galilee. Once again, do they know the Scriptures? Apparently not. Uh, Christ is a divider. There's no getting around it. Christ is a divider. And in our culture, when it comes to religion, and specifically Jesus Christ, I think the message loud and clear is quiet. Quiet. Do not speak about Jesus Christ. Do not speak about... That's a private matter. Don't bring your religion here. Don't shove your religion down my throat. 
And Christians are told to be quiet, to shut their mouths. And I hate to say it, but it's working. It's working. And again, I I won't stand up here this morning and point the finger. I realize there's times when I don't speak up about Christ like I would like to, as boldly as I would like to, because I'm afraid. This really has pervaded our culture and its effect affected all of us. And again, this, this is nothing new. In 713, we read all this discussion about Jesus, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Fear. What would the Jews think who hate Jesus? So they were quiet. And we can do the same thing. We do do the same thing. I think if we were all honest, we'd say there were times when I wanted to say more about Jesus and Christianity and the gospel, but I didn't because of fear of what people would think. And it seems that the context in which we live is causing us to be more and more fearful because this is divisive, but we need to be bold. We need to be bold and we need to realize, yes, this is going to be divisive, Yes, it's almost as though you mention the name of Jesus and you can almost hear the rattling of the sword coming out of its saber. You can almost hear it and you can almost say, I can see it. A sharp division is going to take place right here. It might be an end of this friendship. You can see it, can't you? you? You can almost see it. A division is going to take place right here. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we willing to let Christ divide or not? What's more important, Christ or this friendship? And we need to speak up. And, and let me just close by saying, you, you never know how people may respond. You just, you never know. Tell people about Jesus Christ. Tim Keller said something that has really stuck with me. He, he said, most people have not rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. What they have rejected is a moralistic religion. And that, that's very important. And that's stuck with me. I don't think most people really understand the gospel, non-Christians. I don't think they really have rejected the gospel of forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ alone. I think what they have rejected is a bunch of rules, self-righteous Christians, moralistic Christians who think they're better than everybody else, and they don't want to have anything to do with that. I don't think they really understand the gospel, which means let's stop assuming that people, because they're Americans, know the gospel. Maybe we could even ask them, hey, can I explain the gospel to you? I want to make sure we're, we're on the same page. I want you to understand what, what I really believe. Can I have a minute or two and just explain it to you? When, when I say I'm a Christian, I, I'm not saying that I'm more righteous than other people. Matter of fact, I, I may be far more wicked than a lot of people. That it has nothing to do with that. I'm a sinner. Real Christians understand that they're sinners, that they're wicked people, that God doesn't love them because of who they are. And I deserve hell. But God sent Christ to die on the cross, paying the price for, for my sin. He was judged for my sin. So that through faith in Him, I could be set free. And, and the gospel is just repenting of your sin, just admitting you're a sinner, looking to Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross, atoning for our sin, and then being forgiven. 
And then because of that, I, I seek to follow God however I can. And I do a terrible job of, of following Christ. I stumble all the time. But I'm not trying to earn my salvation. I, I don't think most people understand that. I really don't. I was getting my hair cut a, a while back. And, and the ladies were, were talking about another Christian that, that they knew. And, and this woman, she just thought she was better than everybody, anybody else. And I've been going there for years. They all know I'm a pastor. And I just said, oh, I, I hate hearing that. <laughs> that's, that's not how a Christian is supposed to be. That's how people perceive Christians. We, we need to be aware of that. And we need to tell them what the gospel is all about. Grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. And maybe we could help them understand what wretches we are. <laughs> maybe it's not talking about all the great things we do. Maybe we could talk about all the lousy things we do. Well, I'm a wretch. You want to know how wretched I am? Let me tell you how wretched I am. Maybe go through the whole list. I'm serious. You think I'm kidding? I'm not. Let them know. Let them meet a Christian who understands they're not self-righteous. Let them meet a Christian who understands how bad they are, and it's only by grace alone. Let them understand that's the gospel. And then let the chips fall where they may, or let the sword fall where it may, and let Christ divide however He pleases. Let's pray. Father, Christ is the divider. Father, may we let Him divide. Father, forgive us for our guilty silence. Forgive us for our fear. Forgive us for our self-righteousness. Father, empower us with Your Spirit. Help us to be bold. Help us to be humble. Help us to be honest. Father, give us opportunities to tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. To clarify the gospel of Jesus Christ. To do away with the misconceptions that many people have of the gospel. Father, even this week, Father, can I be so bold as to ask that you would give us an opportunity to talk to somebody about Christ. Father, open that door. Father, help us to grow in holiness. Father, help us to live in light of eternity. Help us to live in light of the ascension. Help us to live in light of our eventual reuniting physically with Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.